Riches from the East by Father Bede Griffiths. Presentation 5, The Church and the New Science and New Theology. Perhaps we could begin with a chant, a familiar one, from the unreal lead me to the real, from darkness lead me to light, from death lead me to immortality. Om today to consider this church in the light of the new science, the new theology. And I would remind you that for a thousand years, from 500 AD to 1500, the perennial philosophy prevailed throughout the civilized world. In China, in India, the Muslim world, Christian Europe, there was a perennial philosophy, understanding of the whole cosmos, of man's place in the cosmos, and ultimate reality, which took different shapes, different forms in the different culture, but had this basic unity. And it's that unity which was shattered at the Renaissance and from which we're suffering at the present moment, and we're trying to recover that original unity. And, of course, the perennial philosophy stems from a much more ancient tradition. It goes back really at the beginning of humanity, where this wisdom, this understanding of the universe, is expressed in the form of mythology. And today we recognize the myth, you see, as symbolic language. And for thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of years, man expressed himself through the myth, through symbols. And these all have a profound meaning. We're discovering today that all the tribal peoples, the Australian Aborigines, the American Indians, the tribal people in Africa and Asia, all have this symbolic theology, you could call it, a mythology in which the cosmos and man and the supreme reality which enfolds the cosmos and man were all recognized. And people lived in the context of that mythology and that understanding. And then, roughly from 500 BC, with the Upanishads, Greek philosophy, we get the rational understanding begins to emerge, and the myth is subjected to rational analysis and so on. And so you get that meeting of the mythical, intuitive imagination and the rational mind. And that brings forth this perennial philosophy, begins to develop into a philosophical language in China, in India, in Islam, and in Christian Europe. And that prevailed, as I say, for at least a thousand years, two thousand years if we take it from the beginning, and a thousand years of a comprehensive philosophy. And then at the Renaissance, that was lost for various reasons. The chief reason, I think, was that actually this kind of rational philosophy goes back to Socrates and the Greeks. Socrates was always asking, what is justice? Analyze it, tell me what it is, what is virtue, what is goodness, and so on. 
And that set in motion this train of rational linear thought, as they call it, as distinguished from the mythological symbolic thought. And that went on as a kind of undercurrent in Europe all through the Middle Ages, particularly with the discovery of Aristotle in the 12th century. That kind of rational scientific thinking began to take hold. And from that time onwards, it grew more and more until it broke out at the Renaissance. It was a return to the Greek modes of thought. And the deeper intuitions of the perennial philosophy faded away, and gradually this new scientific view of the universe took hold. And what is happening today is that that scientific model of the universe, which started in the 17th century and continued into our century, has broken down. And we're now emerging into a new age when we're rediscovering the perennial philosophy. The story of it, roughly, and here I base myself entirely on the work of Frithjof Capra, Many others have written now on this subject, but you probably know his Tower of Physics, where he describes this breakthrough in physics, which has demolished the old vision of the universe and opened up anew. And then his very important book, The Turning Point, I think not so many know it, where he shows how this new vision of the universe is affecting not only physics, but biology, psychology, medicine, very importantly, and economics. And he says, we're undergoing a paradigm shift from the mechanistic, materialistic model of the universe. We're moving into an organic model of the universe, where everything is interrelated by mind and matter are no longer separate, but are interdependent. And we're living in this world of interdependent relationships. And this is going to change our whole way of life, the present uh, civilization in which we're living is a product of this mechanistic, materialistic science. And the new age is coming into being, which will be molded by this organic vision of the universe. So that is where we're situated today. Now, just to recall the stages, the breakup began in the 16th century with Descartes. And he divided the universe into matter and mind. And matter was, he called, res extensa, extended reality, do you see? And mind was res cogitans, a thinking reality. And they were quite separate. He thought, actually, they united at the pineal gland, was the point when the mind made contact with the body. But they're two separate realities. And so the view grew up that we live in a material universe, which is quite separate from us. And the human mind simply observes this extended universe around us. And that uh, material universe obeys mathematical laws. Descartes was primarily a mathematician, and he believed that you could explain the whole universe in terms of mathematical law. And the next element in this change was Francis Bacon. And he developed the idea that this universe is a mechanism which we can learn to understand and control, and we can control it for our own benefit. And all modern technology stems from that idea. We can gain control over matter and the, and the universe outside us and mold it to our own aims and objects. And of course, this has had a wonderful success in a certain way. And then another element in it was Galileo insisted that the only way of scientific knowledge is knowledge which is quantitative, which can be measured. 
So all these, an extended substance outside you, a mathematical law, a system which can be manipulated and controlled, and quantification, it's entirely miserable. Now, all this, you see, is very positive in one way, and it's had a most marvelous effect. It's changed the world, and we must deny its positive values. In fact, it may be interesting to note, no, Sri Aurobindo, in his great work, The Life Divine, his first chapter was on the materialist denial. And he says how by denying the spiritual world, the Western world has explored the material world in a way it has never been done before, you see. And we have a knowledge now which no other people have ever had. So there is something positive. And his second chapter is the ascetic denial that the East did the opposite. The East denied matter, concentrated on the spiritual world. So one is balancing the other, and today we're trying to integrate the two. So that was the model of the universe which emerged and which Newton perfected. Newton showed how this mechanical universe was constructed and its laws, and that model which Newton gave in the 17th century continued for the next two centuries. We were all brought up, really, in this Newtonian model of the universe. But there was a great difference that Descartes was a Catholic and believed in God and brought God into his philosophy, and Newton was a very interesting Christian theologian, not very orthodox, but extremely interesting. He studied magic as well, you know, and the occult. Uh, whole volumes, apparently, which didn't weren't published, I think, uh, which have been discovered where he is uh, exploring all these different realms. But Newton believed that God was in charge of this mechanical universe, you see. But the next century, the 18th century, began to question that. And Laplace, I think it was, said, in regard to God, we have no need of that hypothesis. We can explain the universe without God. So God was eliminated, and then a study of the human being, the human organism, more and more seemed to be explained by physical and biological laws, and it was felt we could do without the soul. And so God and the soul were removed, and the whole universe was conceived in terms of matter obeying mechanical laws. That was the situation reached at the beginning of this century. And then the great change took place. And the basis of the previous view was that this universe could ultimately reduce to atoms. And the atoms were particles obeying definite laws which could be known. And once you've got to know all the atoms, all the particles, all the laws they obeyed, you could explain the whole universe. And then came the crisis in 1930, I think it was, with Niels Bohr and, and Heisenberg, where the atom was split and they began to explore these subatomic particles and found they did not obey these mechanical laws. And it was a terrible crisis. They, they went through agonies. Their whole science seemed to be collapsing. But they had to face it. And eventually it, it broke through that when you come to the subatomic particles, sometimes they appear as particles, sometimes they appear as waves. So the extended substance outside us began to dissolve, you see, and gradually it was realized that matter is a form of energy, and today we see matter and energy interchangeable. So our whole vision has changed, and we see now the whole material universe as a field of energies, which are structured in a particular way. There's a beautiful phrase which Fistoff Capra uses, 
that the universe is a complicated web of relations between the various parts of a unified whole. The old idea was if you could only get down to the atoms, the building blocks, you could explain everything. Once you understood what it was made of, you could explain everything. But then, once the atom dissolved in that way, they discovered that you cannot explain any part except in relation to the whole. And this changes our whole understanding. We're living in a unified whole. And the whole influences and controls the parts. You cannot understand any part of the universe except in relation to the whole. And then another extremely interesting theory has been introduced by David Bohm, an English physicist, very famous in the world of physics, but who is also a disciple of Krishnamurti. And it's, it's one of the very interesting points when a pure physical scientist opens himself to Eastern wisdom, you see. And he's developed the theory of what he calls the implicate order. It's a fascinating theory. He says that what we experience in this world is explicated, unfolded. But all that is explicated was originally implicated in the beginning. Everything was fused together in the beginning, implicated, and it gradually unfolds, you see. And this gives us a marvelous vision, you see, of the whole is present in every part. You're observing a particular explication part, but you cannot understand that part whether it's an atom, a molecule, or an organism, a plant, an animal, or a man, unless you relate it to the whole. And so you've got to go back to the implicate order where everything is contained in its origin, you see. It's a fascinating idea. And he sees its implications not only from the physical world, but also from the point of view of consciousness, you see. And that is the next stage in the Descartes and others. There's a complete separation between matter and mind, you see and the mind was simply observing. And then Einstein, of course, showed how your understanding of the universe depended on the observer. You cannot leave out the observer. Same happened with quantum physics. They found that the mechanism which you set up changed what you observed. So gradually it's being discovered that you cannot separate the material world from the mind which observes it. And now we recognize that matter and mind are interdependent. And incidentally, you know, that was the view of Aristotle. Descartes broke with Aristotle, but Aristotle said that the mind is the form of the body. The soul is the form of the body. It's the organizing principle of the body. So in Aristotle, they were united. We are psychosomatic unities, you see, and you cannot understand the body apart from the mind or the mind apart from the body. So now we've come back to that vision of reality. The implications of that are so fascinating. You see, if the whole is present in every part, it means the whole universe is present in you and me. We are microcosms. And the particles which emerged at the first explosion of matter 20 million years ago, whatever it was, these particles apparently were so organized that the present universe would unfold from them, you see. And if they'd been slightly different, there would have been another universe. And we ourselves are the product of these thousands of millions of years of evolution of these original particles, this matter which emerged, you see. So each one of us is a microcosm. These atoms of the universe are present in each one of us, and those atoms have been organized by life into a living system, and that has been organized by consciousness, and we've emerged now into consciousness. The universe is emerging into consciousness in each one of us, you see, is the idea. Now, that is the discovery in physics. The next one was in biology. 
And here I have a rather personal interest. Rupert Sheldrake, you may know his name, wrote this book, A New Science of Life. It was written in our ashram, and we became great friends. And he has a very, very interesting view of the whole development. But in this book, he's kept it strictly on the scientific level as a testable hypothesis. And what he has done is to say that the mechanistic view of, of biology simply cannot stand just as in physics they had to break through. As you know, the typical biologist today, and it still remains true, thinks that all life can be understood in terms of physics and chemistry. If we could only know sufficiently, we could explain life in terms of physics and chemistry. And of course, molecular biology has had extraordinary success with all this genetic engineering and so on. But uh, Rupert Sheldrake shows that it simply cannot explain the phenomena of life. And he's introduced what he calls morphogenetic fields, that you cannot explain the evolution of the universe simply in terms of energy. Energy of itself is indeterminate. It has no structure. You must have some organizing power which structures the energy, you see. And this dissolves one of those great illusions. You see that before they were saying in biology that the whole evolution of the universe is due to chance. Monod, the French biologist, wrote a book explaining the whole universe in terms of chance and necessity. These chance mutations bring about changes, and they obey certain laws, and the whole universe can be explained in those terms. But Rupert Sheldrake says chance cannot explain, even the concept of chance is very dubious. It cannot be explained in those terms. You have to recognize an organizing power in nature. Why do the subatomic particles organize themselves into a nucleus and electrons to form an atom? Why do atoms organize themselves in a very complex structures into molecules? Why do the molecules organize themselves in still more complex structures into cells, living cells, you see? And why do the living cells organize themselves to form a total organism, a plant or an animal? And then how is it that this living organism organized itself in such a way as to evolve into consciousness, you see. You, to say this is all chance is ludicrous, really, you see. There is an organizing power which structures the universe, and it works at the subatomic level, at the atomic, at the molecular, and at the level of the living cell and the organism, and that organizing power becomes conscious in us. We are bodies following the laws of the whole of this atomic molecular world. At the same time, we, it has, this world has emerged into consciousness and we can observe now ourselves and this whole world around us and bring it up into our consciousness. And so the whole world of biology opens on the world of consciousness. And the next stage is in psychology. Here Ken Wilbur is the person I rely on most. His two books, The Spectrum of Consciousness and The Artman Project, which is the most fascinating, really. And he is an orthodox psychologist, and he bases himself on Freud, on Jung, and particularly on Maslow, sort of humanistic psychology, all the different schools of Western psychology. But he shows how we have to go beyond those. And this transpersonal psychology, which has been developed at Esalen, California, takes us beyond normal human consciousness and the ego consciousness into the transcendent, transpersonal consciousness. 
And so instead of where the behaviorists were trying to explain all human consciousness in terms of, of the physical organism, we now see that the physical organism opens into this psychological organism, and that now can be transcended. We can go beyond our present psychology, our present mode of consciousness, and open onto higher levels of consciousness. And that is the point when modern psychology opens itself to Eastern psychology and Eastern mysticism. And Ken Wilber has, has traced the whole course. It's fascinating, from the elementary particles and the, and the organism, through all the stages of consciousness, to the transpersonal, the transcendent consciousness. And what they discover now, you see, is that our present mode of consciousness, what Aurobindo calls the mental consciousness, is a limited mode of consciousness and never gives us an adequate view of the universe. As long as we remain on the mental level, we cannot understand the universe because the mental level is always dualistic. Everything is in terms of dualities, of subject and object, of mind and matter, conscious and unconscious, time and space. Everything is, is limited by this mode of consciousness. What we are experiencing is not reality itself, but reality reflected in our body, our senses, our imagination, our conceptual apparatus, you see. It's always limited and always conditioned. And we have to go beyond this conditioned consciousness. And um, Wilbur traces these further stages of consciousness. And he used the language of uh, theosophy, I think it is really, of a gross world, gross senses, and the gross mind, the subtle body, the subtle senses, and the subtle mind, and the causal body, and the causal mind. And we are living in the gross world, and our whole mental consciousness is concerned with all these gross realities, you see, the gross uh, senses. But there is a subtle world, a subtle mind, what I call the psychic world, you see. And I thought you might be interested. I made a list of some of the aspects of this psychic world. See, when we get beyond the mental consciousness, you break down your present mental consciousness, and the whole world of the unconscious, with all these psychic energies in it, comes into play. And the various examples of this parapsychology get dreams are the first thing, you see. Every night when we go to sleep, we dream, and we enter into that psychic world. And I'm not good at it, I'm afraid, but some people have wonderful dreams, and they say you can't learn to control your dreams. You must watch them every day, and they form a kind of sequence, and your whole unconscious comes to light through observing your dreams. As you know, for Freud and for Jung, the exploration of the dream was one of their principal methods of exploring the unconscious. And then, once you enter that psychic world of dreams where time and space are no longer as they are here, and causality doesn't work in the same way, then you begin to discover these parapsychological paths, precognition, how you know something is going to happen before it happens. And all these things have now been definitely categorized. We know that these things come. You can experience your past lives. You can go into your unconscious and experience what Stan Grove calls the perinatal consciousness, around the time of your birth, in the womb, at the moment of birth, and immediately afterwards. The human being is fully conscious at that stage, but not rational consciousness, obviously, but in this deep consciousness. And it remains in you, and you can rediscover these experiences at the moment of birth. 
And they say you can go beyond your own birth to other lives, which I suggest is simply going into the unconscious of mankind. We all have the unconscious in ourselves, and we can go deep into that and discover the, the past, you see, how it's mediated to us. So you can go into this, the past in that way. Actually, you see, within our unconscious is our personal unconscious, then the racial unconscious, the whole human unconscious, and then the animal, the plant, right back to the first particles. All that is within our consciousness. As Aristotle said, you know, he had the most wonderful insights. The human soul is quodamodo omnia in the Latin film, is in a sense all things. If everything is present in the soul, you see, as I said, we're a microcosm. The whole universe is in us. As the Upanishads again and again say, within this heart, within this center of the lotus, is the moon and the stars and the sun and everything else. It's all within us, you see. So that is the meaning of that. Then there is all these phenomena of astral travel. People can appear at a distance. I've known quite ordinary people who have that capacity to turn up in Spain or in France or somewhere and, and, and visit people in this kind of astral travel. And then telekinesis, the movement of things in the poltergeist phenomena, you know furniture begins to move about and things spin through the air and so on. These are well-authenticated phenomena. And telepathy, where you know something taking place at a distance. A mother very often knows the moment when her son is killed, thousands of miles away it may be, by telepathy. This is an important point, you know, that this psychic knowledge was far more common among ancient people. We've rather lost it. Why? Because, you see, from the early age, of four or five, we develop our rational consciousness. And the more you develop that, the more the psychic intuitive, subliminal consciousness is suppressed and only comes up in dreams. But in the ancient world, you were open to this psychic world from infancy, and therefore they had this awareness of all these phenomena. And this is where the whole subject comes of ghosts and spirits and elves and fairies and gods and angels. See, all these are phenomena of the unconscious or of the subconscious, you see. And the ancient world, they were much more aware of all these psychic forces around us. They're all psychic energies, you see, in which we're involved. And they're not illusions. There were fairies, there were elves, and, and even today people can see them. And still more obviously, gods and angels. They're structured according to the different culture and symbolism, but they all manifest psychic forces which are working in all of us. You can ignore them as much as you like, but you are being influenced by these angels and demons. You see, the whole Christian tradition, the fathers of the desert were always called with these devils which were assaulting them all the time. I remember one story of two young men who came to meditate to a guru, to a spiritual father, and he went to them after a fortnight or so, and one was sitting in meditation, and he was absolutely pure. You could see he was radiant with angelic light. And the other one, a lot of little devils were still attacking him from various points. So he knew one had got beyond, the other was still under temptation. And he saw the little devils, you see. But uh, that is simply a, a psychic consciousness. Some people today, I knew a lady years ago, she had this fully, and she saw all these elves and fairies and, and centaurs, all sorts of things. We were going through a forest, and she was seeing all these things. So that consciousness is there, but it's buried in most of us. But among ancient people, that was normal. 
So these are all the phenomena of the psychic world, you see. And as I said, it's a dangerous world. You can get into it by drugs and by yoga, by other methods. But if you're not purified when you enter that world, it's got good and evil forces. You see, positive and negative forces. And you're exposing yourself to forces which you can't control.